0: Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated.
1: Father in heaven, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is here with us, not just in this sanctuary, but inside us, your temples. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for that reality and pray that as we unpack your word, we would be changed and that you would do that work which only you can do, that you can cause us to feel deeply your affection. You could cause us to think deeply about your truth, that you, Holy Spirit, would illuminate our hearts and minds, convicting us of what needs to be convicted of and reminding us of truth that maybe we've known so long and yet it's lost some of its freshness. Blow through this place, Holy Spirit. Enable us to see all that took place in the life of our Savior Jesus, that we might truly bring you glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like you to go ahead and open uh, the Blue Pew Bible in front of you or your own Bible. If you use uh, the Bible app on your phone, open that too. Don't go anywhere else, but go there. Uh, Because I want to begin by looking at two further verses in this text. And then we're going to also go to Zechariah 9, where this prophecy was given and then fulfilled. Here in Matthew 21. And I also want us to go to Psalm 118 later in this sermon. But I want to begin by going back to Matthew 21. And I want to read two verses further. So, Jesus, we are told, is riding on the donkey. The people have lined the streets and they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That comes from Psalm 118. And then we have these two verses, which were not printed in the bulletin. That's why I want you to open the Bible. This is what Matthew records. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Now imagine what that looked like. This is the time of Passover. There were thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people there that weren't normally there. And the city is stirred up. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? That's the critical question. Who is this man that we are celebrating this week? Even as the disciples asked that question as they were on the boat with Jesus and he was asleep, and he got up as they were in the process of drowning, they thought, and he hushed the winds and the sea and the waves. They said, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? So now Jesus is on a donkey and the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Psalm 118, they're singing that song. And they end with the question, who is this? This last Sunday and the Sunday before, I was with my family in Japan. I asked you to pray and we felt your prayers. I preached nine times in a week. In fact, eight times from last Friday to this last Sunday. Four different churches, three of which had bilingual services, part Japanese, part English, and one that was in nothing but Japanese. Each time I was preaching through a translator, which was a wonderful experience. A young man from Detroit, whose relatives are in Japan, who is Japanese, was my translator. His name is Kuni, a wonderful young man, such an honor to do that with him. Being in Japan was very interesting because it's a culture that's very, very different than ours. My daughter Maddie, our second born, is in between high school and college. She graduated high school last year, so she's doing a gap year. And she's serving with Christ Bible Institute, and she's thriving. So as a dad, that's wonderful to see. But she had a lot to teach me about Japan. One of the first things she said is, Dad, you're too loud. You're just, You're just too loud. Our family's too loud. You need to quiet down. And and we are loud. There's seven of us. We we make a noise. Um, We don't mean to. We just are. But we're especially loud in Japan because they're not. They are lovely people. Things work in Japan. The engineering is amazing. It's clean. It's so clean, and yet there are no trash cans anywhere. Um, The people don't look at you. They keep to themselves. They don't look at each other unless they init- someone initiates a conversation. But when you do, well, you can't out-polite the Japanese. Being in another country, I-, I love all that you get to experience. One of the fun things I enjoy is traveling, and especially in a city by my own, on my own that I don't know, trying to navigate. But men don't like getting directions. Most of us don't. And until you're desperate, you won't really ask for help. Well, I became desperate. Tuesday a week ago, I was taking the train from Tokyo to Chiba to see Dan Iverson. Dan's directions were very good. The only problem is when I got to one station, there was no English. And so I had four platforms to choose from, eight trains going different directions. And I had no idea where I was going or coming from. And so I tried my best to do this on my own, but I realized very quickly, I need help. I was told to ask anyone and they would be helpful. And they were right. I went to a man I'm gonna assume was about 65. I asked him if he spoke English. He didn't say a word to me. He just looked at me kindly. So I assumed that meant no. So I showed him my phone where I needed to go. He knew immediately where it was. He then pointed to the train that I was standing by. I thought, see, I kinda do know what I'm doing. (laughs) Pride was entering in. He wasn't so confident. So I walked onto the train he told me to get on and I sat down. He followed me onto that train. It wasn't his train. And he spoke in Japanese to a woman who was sitting there. She listened, spoke back to him. They both looked at me and she nodded. And then he left. What was he doing? He was making sure that this stranger, this foreigner who didn't know where he was or what he was doing, would be notified when to get off the train. And she was very, very helpful. We never communicated with language. What they need from me and what they need from you from all who are in Christ, is people who will be present to give them the direction in answering this critical question, who is Jesus? Japan is less than 1% Christian. I want you to hear that. It's the second largest lost people group in the world. So sophisticated, so bright, so seemingly together, and yet, less than 1% profess faith in Jesus. And you can tell. The missionaries who are there need our constant prayer for encouragement. Many who serve over there will tell stories like this that we've been here four years, and it wasn't until this fourth year that we saw the first Japanese man or woman profess faith in Jesus. Four years. And they're staying at it. They're faithful to the work that God's called them to, but it's very, very hard. And when you find yourself on a subway and you're you're just squeezed in because there's so many people, and all the men are wearing black suits, and all the women essentially are dressed the same. Nonconformity is not appropriate. You see the horror of what that means. so few who know Jesus but when one of them comes to Christ the celebration is not lost on them the thought that there's a celebration taking place in heaven is one of their own natives says I believe in Jesus causes a tremendous celebration and last Sunday 14 hours ahead of this time now last Sunday I was preaching and Cooney my translator was was proclaiming it as well not a word of English spoken except from me. And after the service, a, a young man comes up to me, and he's introduced to me by the pastor, and then they tell me this: He is going to be baptized on Easter Sunday in two weeks. Right now he's going through the class to make sure he understands all that he has embraced. Because he has embraced this, he has lost relatives who no longer will accept him. But he believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he's going forward with this. It's amazing. And so I met him. And through the translator, he told me his story. And then as I looked at him, I saw his eyes filled with tears as he is about to experience the means of grace called baptism. This outward and visible sign of an inward and visible work of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing, my friends. I wish I could see it. I trust that they will videotape it and send it to me because it warms my heart. Because someone that God called to himself was faithful enough and steadfast enough to answer this young man's question when at some point he said, who is Jesus? Who is he? This morning as we prepare our hearts for this incredible week before us, That question comes straight from the text. Those who were shouting Hosanna, most of them had no real clue who Jesus was. Even the disciples didn't really know why he was doing what he's doing, but he did. And at the center of this incredible narrative about Jesus in the triumphal entry is the humility of God. Do you see it? Zechariah 9.9 says, Is the prophecy that is quoted by Matthew in 21 5 turn to Zechariah 9 9 it's a minor prophet near the end of the Old Testament so it's just a few pages to the left in your Bible as you go to Zechariah 9 9 you'll see the phrase given that is the prophecy of what the Lord and Savior is going to do and then Matthew and the other Gospels reflect this Zechariah 9 9 The prophet says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then back to Matthew 21, verse 4 This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, the prophet Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus Christ, creator, king, savior, redeemer, humble, riding on a donkey. When we come across an individual that is humble, we recognize the quality of their life, and it's really beautiful. When we come across a person who lacks humility, we also recognize what that is. And we may not be as specific as we want to be, but it's pretty disgusting. You right now, if I asked you to put an arrogant, man or woman who lacks humility in your mind, you have someone there. If I ask you to put a person who truly is humble in your mind, you likely have someone you might put there as well, and someone other than Jesus. But the list of people you would put in that second category versus the first is vastly different. And the speed at which you could come up with a list for those who are truly humble and those who aren't, well, it would take a lot longer for that. But if I ask you to take that person that you think is grossly arrogant and that person who is deeply humble and to place yourself somewhere on that bar, where would you put yourself? Now immediately, I've tempted you to lack humility or to generate a false humility, right? The truth is, humble people don't really think that way. But my point in doing that is to help you see that Jesus Christ is not on that bar. He is not like the most humble man you know because he was perfectly humble. He didn't just have humility, he was perfect in humility. He never had a thought that lacked humility. He never did or said anything that wasn't humble, ever. And Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And where we are on that bar, no matter where you put yourself, shows how distant we are from the one who had to humble himself that we might live forever. So what does a humble person look like? There are two things among many that I want to focus on for a minute because I think they're the foundation of it. And Jesus had those perfectly. First, it's this. People who are humble, they're humble because first they know who they are. Their identity is secure in the one thing that matters most. They know who they are. Secondly, it is that they know what they're called to do and how to do it. So let's begin by talking about identity. In this passage about Jesus, there are about five different phrases given to him in this narrative alone. He is called Jesus by his name, Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. He is called a prophet. He is called son of David, son of the most high. And he is given the title king. Jesus Christ knew who he was as he walked upon this earth. He was all of those things. He was the perfect prophet. He was the perfect priest about to become the perfect sacrifice. And he was the perfect king. I want to focus on King for a moment, because as Jesus comes to this scene, he knows that his hour has come. And one of the things that he does is he begins to truly act like a king. First, you note that he sends people on a mission to do something for him as a king. In verse two, saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me." He's acting as king. And as king, he is taking control of the timeline. As king, he is giving an order to the disciples, go and get the donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, bring them to me. And his disciples did it. But as he's exercising his kingly divinity, we see how in control he is. This king is unlike any earthly king. He is sovereign over even these domestic animals. He knows where the animals are and who owns them. Jesus doesn't own them. Now, wait a minute. I know what I'm saying. He's creator. He made those donkeys. But they belong entitled to another. And as this humble king, he is requisitioning them. He is saying, go and tell that individual if they ask. The Lord needs them. And so they go in obedience to their king. And they bring these donkeys back to Jesus. Jesus is acting as king. As king, he mounts on this beast of burden, not on a stallion. He comes in meekness and humility, not as this powerful warrior presence on a stallion. That will come later. He is riding on this donkey. And he isn't even saddled up. These cloaks that are used from poor people are put over the donkeys and he rides on those. As king, he is doing something that might sound like it lacks humility, but it doesn't. As king, he is drawing attention to himself. He wants in this moment for the eyes of all those people to be upon him. Before this, he didn't. He would say, don't go and tell anyone. Keep this to yourself. My time has not yet come, but now his time had come. And as king, he was drawing attention to himself. He wanted everyone to see. Why? Because he was forcing the hand of the Pharisees. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted him gone. They wanted to obliterate him and the movement. But they didn't have a timeline yet. So he's bringing it to them. They can no longer deny the reality of what the crowds are doing as they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were shouting it because they wanted a king so bad to remove Rome. They wanted a political king, but that's not Jesus. Jesus wasn't a political king. He was the redeemer king. And he's coming confident of who he is, confident in his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, confident in the mission, confident in the mission that God had given him. But he's acting like a king. He gives an order. He's drawing attention to himself. He's drawing attention to himself to force the hand of those religious leaders, but also to say, watch me now, because at the end of this road, as I get off this donkey, I'll be heading into the darkest part of human history when the people that I made, my creation, is going to stop shouting, Hosanna, and you're gonna begin to shout, crucify him. He wants the eyes drawn to him is he goes to the cross and says, it is finished. The one true Savior of the world. Jesus knows who he is. He's humble because of the security of that identity. But like truly humble people, he doesn't just know who he is, he also knows what he's called to do. And what he is called to do is to be the man, the sacrifice, the second Adam, who obeys perfectly his heavenly father and lives the life that we could never live perfectly with humility. And then he moves towards becoming that sacrificial lamb, dying the death that we all deserved to die. And so Jesus moves through this scene knowing what awaits. Who is this man? The Word tells us who he is. What did this man do? Well, the Word tells us what he did. That's what we're going to be focusing on every day this week. Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, knowing what he had to do, did it. In this deep, profound and perfect humility, Jesus went and took on all of your sin and all of mine. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, all the things that we should do, but haven't. All the times we should have said something, but didn't. All the time we gave reluctantly on and under compulsion instead of generously because of how generous he's been to us. All the times we've simply gone through the motions of worship, checking the box and then leaving. Every sin of every person was poured out on Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do. And he did it. And so now, for all who are in Christ, we have this profound privilege of answering the question, who is this? Well, let me tell you who he is. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the savior, redeemer. And he's my friend. What did he do? He died that I might live forever He died that I might be in him forever. He died that I might have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. Who is this man? He is my Savior. He is my God. He is my permanent identity. And it's already begun. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This week, you're going to have an opportunity. I promise you to answer that question. People are gonna ask, whether it's specifically to you or in something you read, and you're gonna hear it. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? And as you answer the question, just as I've described, I want you to answer one further question. This is who he is, this is what he has done, but I want you to add a third question, a third answer to a third question. This is who he is, this is what he's done, and this is who I am in him, now and for forever. To answer that question, I want you to go to the song that the people were singing, Psalm 118. So turn there just for a moment. One of the great temptations of the Japanese culture is the fear of man. They care more about what other people think of them, especially their families, than they do the truth. When someone asked me to compare Dallas with Japan, I said, that's probably our great sin too. It doesn't extend just to families, though. But we are a people that cares very deeply about what other people think. At the center of that is what? Pride. The opposite of humility. And as I stand before you in the pulpit, I'm just as tempted as anyone in here to seek the praise of man, to fear the criticism of man, If you're in Christ Jesus, and I don't know if you're going to believe me or not, if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of any man. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you only need to be afraid of one man, and Jesus is the one. Psalm 118 is the song that they sung it comes from verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but he bless you from the house of the Lord. But listen to how the song begins. And think about the fear of man that you are tempted with. And listen to the goodness of God. The psalmist writes, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot. Man can kill you. Man can ruin your reputation. Man can slander you. Man can lie to you. Man can cheat on you. Man can do a lot. And for all that man can do, Jesus Christ died. And he died because the mankind that he created killed him. That's how dark it is. But listen to what the psalmist says next. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Paul, whether he was referencing Psalm 118 or not, and he might have been, because Psalm 118 is one of six psalms most quoted in the New Testament. He said, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for you, who can be against you? The temptation to fear man is very real. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have no need to fear man. So when someone asks you, who is Jesus? Who is this man? Tell him. When they ask you, what did he do? Tell him. And whether they ask you or not, tell them this, and this is who I am in Christ, now and forever. I have an identity that is permanent. I am the beloved daughter. I am the beloved son of the living God. His love is described perfectly in this psalm as a steadfast love that lasts forever who is Jesus? What did he do? Who are you in Jesus? If you're in Jesus, that identity is yours now and for forever. If you're not in Jesus, not yet, I'm so glad you came today. And my prayer is that you will just give time to consider what you heard. You may be offended. You may be enraged. You may simply have come as a friend, but I'm glad you're here. Because the central question in the history of this world really is, who is this man? If you don't believe what the Bible says about him, what do you believe? I personally would love to know. I really would. What I believe is that he is who he says he is. And he did what he said he did. And he's doing now what he said he would do. And what is that? He's reigning as our king. And someday, the father is gonna say, go. And he'll go. And he won't be on a donkey. And when he comes, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus is Lord. For those who are in Christ, your security in him Is never going to feel so secure. For those who are not in Christ, you have never faced a fear like you will fear then and forever. May the Lord bring you to Himself. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we're in a place where we're called to proclaim Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. We're thankful, Lord, for what you did. And we know that without you opening our eyes to see it, it would just be our own thoughts. But you've given us so much more, Holy Spirit. So would you cause our cheeks not to be dry this week? Would you open our eyes to behold your glory and wonder that we might really understand what you went through, that we might live forever, that we would be full of gratitude, that we would long to share this good news with the world, including those who live in our homes on our blocks, work next to us, at places of recreation. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.